And now as we come to your word, Lord, we remember that it is food for our souls. It's strength for our weak hearts. We remember that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, it is inspired, it is your very word speaking to us, and that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so we pray, Lord, that your word would accomplish these purposes in us. We also thank you for our children who are here. We pray specifically for them. We pray specifically for their salvation. Oh God, we pray that you would call them in due time. We pray that many seeds would be planted today, even today, and that you would save them for the glory of Christ. Teach us now, O oh Lord. Help us to hear Christ, to understand, and to conform our lives to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 10. We're going to be continuing our study of John chapter 10 today. Uh, and again, this is a chapter that's going to take us quite a while to get through. It's a, it's a lengthy chapter. It's 42 verses, but there is just so much meat in this chapter. This is one of the best chapters in all of Scripture. So we'll be looking at chapter 10, verses 7 to 9 today. John chapter 10, verses 7 to 9. You know, I was recently reading that after two decades of research, the Firefighter Safety Research Institute discovered that a door can be the difference between life and death for a person if their house catches fire, particularly at night, particularly when you're sleeping. I was reading that not only can it slow the, the spread of, of fire from coming into your room, but a closed bedroom door can actually also help to minimize the amount of toxic fumes that come into your room from the house. It makes sense. Uh, so, you know, the more smoke and the more toxic fumes come into your room, the less likely you are to survive. So I'd say, yeah, that makes sense. It's important to minimize those things as much as possible. But further, a closed bedroom door also minimizes the amount of oxygen that makes it into your bedroom if the house should catch fire. Uh, a bedroom with a closed door gets to around 100 degrees, which is survivable. But without a door, it gets to over 1,000 degrees. So a door can make the difference between life and death. Imagine all the things that the front door of your house saves you from. I mean, there are some pretty obvious things. It, it prevents predators from, uh, you know, from coming in, it prevents unwanted guests from walking right in. It keeps most bugs out, keeps most insects out. It keeps cold weather out, or if you were to live in a, a hotter climate, it keeps hot weather out. Life without doors, to say the very least, I think, it would be unsafe and, and probably pretty uncomfortable. And maybe this is why the concept of a door has actually been around since the beginning of Genesis. Uh, we see doors being mentioned in, in just the, the sixth chapter, seventh chapter of Genesis. From early human history, people realized they needed doors. They needed something to close to keep something in or something out. And maybe that's what 
makes the claim that Jesus is going to make in the passage we study today so powerful and so easy to understand. Just the simple fact that every culture around the world throughout human history has recognized how important doors are and you can find doors everywhere. In the passage that we looked at last week, as we started studying the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, we saw that Jesus told the, the allegorical parable of the true shepherd in which he contrasted himself with the most prominent and powerful false teachers of his day. And of course, that refers to the Pharisees. But we saw that they were unable, the Pharisees were unable to understand what Jesus was saying. That's what we saw in verse 6. It's kind of interesting what happens after that. You know, as we might expect the Pharisees to not understand because Jesus is talking about them. I mean, a false teacher or a false shepherd would normally not even recognize that that's what they are, right? They don't even, that's, that's one of the things that makes them dangerous. They think that they are speaking truth. Uh, if you take like cult leaders who have started cults like Joseph Smith, you know, the reason his thinking uh, for, for starting Mormonism or the Church of Latter-day Saints is, you know, he was sure that God told him that the whole church had just gone astray and he was the only one with the truth. Uh, but that's what makes somebody a false teacher. They don't realize that they're a false teacher. They're so wrapped up in prideful self-righteousness, it's difficult for false teachers to see themselves as such. And the Pharisees are in exactly that boat. They couldn't make that connection between themselves and the thieves and robbers that Jesus likened them to in that allegorical parable. It's kind of a parable, but not exactly because it doesn't have a, a story plot or anything like that. But their, their ignorant lack of understanding actually serves as a warning to everyone who reads this passage, who, who studies this passage. It's a reminder that one of the most crucial elements, one of the most vital things we can do if we are to understand scripture is to remain humble in order that we may clearly discern when it's speaking about us in a way that should concern us. Now, the standard response that we, we normally would see from Jesus when the Pharisees aren't understanding something is he just keeps going. He, he just leaves it at that, lets them not understand and one of the reasons he spoke in parables was actually to do that, was, was to conceal truth. It was to reveal truth to those who have ears to hear, but it was to conceal truth from people who didn't want to hear. And, and that was gracious of him because if he were to elaborate and explain and speak forthrightly in order to help them understand, it would only be more light by which they would be judged. So he often and usually didn't even try to explain his parables to them. They were designed to make his listeners think if they wanted to understand. But in this passage, we see something different. We see Jesus break this trend. In this passage, Jesus responds to the confusion of the Pharisees by painting a vivid image for them, giving them an illustration using the common image of a door to explain his relationship to his sheep and to point them out, to point the Pharisees out as being false teachers. 
The point of this passage, verses seven to nine, the point of this passage is that faith in Jesus is the only way to receive God's salvation. Faith in Jesus is the only way to receive God's salvation. So Jesus begins this next illustration, as we'll see with the words, truly, truly, just as he did back in verse one with his allegorical parable of the true shepherd. Now, anytime we see those words, anytime we see Jesus say truly, truly, or verily, verily, as we read in some translations, we want to make sure that we pay very, very close attention because every time Jesus says those words, truly, truly, or verily, verily, he's about to say something very important. And and this is no exception. This passage is no exception because what actually follows from there is a summarization of everything that the Christian faith is about. If you can understand what Jesus says in just these three short verses, you will have heard the very heartbeat of the Christian faith. And indeed, we're going to see some very important, very profound truths in these three short verses that we'll be looking at today. So let's look at these three verses, verses 7 to 9, and then uh, we'll break them down. Verses 7 to 9. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now we need to start by kind of understanding some of the culture of ancient Israel. We need to understand that there were two uh, common types of sheepfolds in ancient Israel. Now in the, in the, parable that we just read last week and studied last week, Jesus referred to the sheepfolds that were, would be located uh, in, in most towns. Uh, they would be very durable structures, you know, constructed of, of wood and fortified to make sure that they were strong. They'd be built with very high walls so that predators and, and thieves and robbers couldn't come in and, and steal uh, the sheep. It would also have a gate that opened and closed um, like a door, and which were guarded, the door would be guarded, the gate would be guarded by a paid gatekeeper. But there was a second type of sheepfold that was very common in ancient Israel, and that was one that was out in the rural countrysides, the the fields, places where shepherds could go and and have their flocks graze and to rest there uh, during the night. Uh, These were much, much smaller than the ones that you would find in the towns. Unlike the sheepfolds in the the towns and the cities, which could hold several different flocks, and I mean, undoubtedly would hold several hundred uh, sheep at a time, these countryside rural sheepfolds were much smaller. They were significantly smaller, only big enough to contain on average one flock. So rather than having high walls, they would be constructed of rocks, just rocks piled up in, in, in a row to make it very difficult for sheep to get out or for predators to get in. 
they'd have just piles of rocks rather than having a gate that opened and closed and a gatekeeper that was paid to to oversee what comes in and what goes out. The shepherd himself would be the one to lay across the opening of the sheepfold, these country uh, countryside sheepfolds, ensuring that nothing got out and nothing came in that he was not aware of. And so therefore, the shepherd would serve the same function as a door. Not only keeping the sheep in the sheepfold, not only keeping them safe, but keeping the sheep from leaving and preventing wolves and bears and other predators from coming in and having a meal. Sir George Adam Smith was a a scholar from the previous century, And he spent a significant amount of time in the Near East, and he told of an encounter that he had with a shepherd while he was over there. The shepherd showed him the sheepfold uh, where where the sheep would be laid to rest, uh, you know, led to rest in, uh, you know, every night. It consisted of four walls made made of rocks um, with a very narrow opening for the sheep to have a way in. Uh, again, it consisted of four walls, just a narrow way in. So upon examining it, upon looking at it and checking it out, uh, Smith asked if the opening was how the sheep got in. Uh, yes, the, she- uh, the shepherd said. And he said this, he said, and when the shepherd are in there, they are perfectly safe. Uh, Smith said to him, but there is no door. And the shepherd responded, I am the door. Now, keep in mind that this was not a Christian. Uh, This wasn't a Christian man. This was just a a, a common shepherd. Uh, He was an Arab shepherd, but he used the exact same language that Jesus used. And he explained further. He said, quote, when the light has gone and all the sheep are inside, I lie across that open space and no sheep ever goes out but across my body. And no wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. End quote. And that's the exact imagery that Jesus is using in this illustration. He's referring to, to this type of sheepfold, the rural countryside sheepfold that was very similar, undoubtedly, to what this Arab shepherd used. When Jesus says, I am the door, he means that sheep who come into the sheepfold must come through him. Now, in the allegorical parable of the true shepherd, the the sheepfold represented Judaism. And Jesus came to draw his sheep out of that sheepfold, to lead them out of that sheepfold. But in this illustration, the sheepfold represents his flock. It represents those who have been led out of whatever system they came from and have been led to green pastures and have followed him. These are the ones who have been called by name and have been led out where he led them. And central to understanding this is seeing that this represents his people. This is a picture of Christ and his people, the church. And we should understand also, central to to our understanding of this illustration, is, is central to our understanding of the church is that there's really only one way into the true church. Now, there's there are two types of churches. There's the visible church, and there's the invisible church. 
The invisible church is the true believers in a church. The visible church is the true church mixed with non-believers. Jesus warned of wheat and tares being mixed together. So there are two churches. There's the invisible church, that's the true church. Then there's the visible church, which consists of the true church and non-believers. But here's what we have to understand. There's only one way in to the true church. And that is through Christ's body, which he freely offered up as a sacrificial atonement for sin on behalf of his sheep, on behalf of the true church on the cross. When Jesus says, I am the door, we should immediately, we should instantly see the significance of those words, I am, right? Those words, I am, are a reference to his nature. He's claiming to be God incarnate, claiming to be God in the flesh. It's a reference back to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses stood before the burning bush and asked God uh, who he should tell the people had sent him to lead them out of Egypt. And the answer that God gave from the burning bush in Exodus 3.14 was this, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Whenever Jesus makes an I am statement, we want to make sure that we pay very close attention. And this is actually the third time he's done this. This is the third I am statement that he's made in John's gospel. All total, there are seven, seven I am statements. But if we can understand these I am statements, I mean, we understand so much about Jesus if we just understand these seven I am statements. The first statement he made was back in chapter six when he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. And then in chapter eight, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Further on in this chapter, just a couple of verses later, Jesus is going to say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In chapter 11, the next chapter, Jesus will say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. In chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And finally, in chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the vine, the true vine. And if you can just wrap your mind around these things, if you can understand these seven statements, you grasp so much about Jesus. And if you can grasp this much about Jesus, you can grasp the entire essence of Christianity. If you understand these statements and what Jesus was claiming and what Jesus was teaching with these I am statements, you understand why Jesus, who is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, that's in the Nicene Creed. If you can understand these things, you can understand who he is and why he came. But the I am statement that we find in our text today is I am the door of the sheep. Now, 
Please make special note of the word the here. That's what you call the definite article. Jesus says he is the door. He doesn't say that he's a door as if there are many ways into the sheepfold. No, that would be disastrous for a shepherd. No, he is the door as in the one and only door. So the meaning here then is just abundantly clear. It is crystal clear. And it's this, believing in Jesus Christ is the only, the only way to receive God's salvation. And again, there's a contrast that Jesus makes here between himself and the false shepherds of Israel, the the Pharisees. He refers to them once again as thieves and robbers. They had rejected him as their Messiah. They believed that the way to salvation, the way to the true church, was through works, through keeping the law. They were trying to get into the fold, but they were not coming through the door. They were not coming through the Messiah. They were not coming through Christ. They were trying some other way, right? They were trying to come in through obedience to at least their understanding of the law. They were trying to enter the fold in an illegitimate way, the same way that thieves and robbers do. This is why Jesus likens them to thieves and robbers. Now, what do you think a shepherd would do if he's aware of a thief or a robber who's trying to come into his sheepfold in some way other than through the shepherd himself? Listen, the shepherd's life is is a tough life. These are not people who are are necessarily very polite or gentle or soft-spoken. If you try to come into the sheepfold in a way other than the shepherd intended, it was on. It it was on. Those those are fighting actions. Uh, The shepherd's job was to protect the sheep at all costs. And the only reason that somebody would try to come into the sheepfold in some way other than through the door, through the shepherd, was because they had nefarious intentions. They had bad intentions. They did not want to be noticed, or they didn't think that the shepherd would care. Now, anyone, including the Pharisees, who does not come into the sheepfold through the shepherd does not belong in the sheepfold. And that person will be met with force. That person will be met with resistance. And that's what Jesus came to do. And that's what he's doing right here in our passage. But more importantly than even that, for Jesus's listeners, and and by the way, that includes me and, and that includes you. More importantly than that for Jesus' listeners is to realize that anyone who does not come into the sheepfold through the shepherd is left to fend for themselves out in the wilderness. They are not part of his flock. They can be in danger and cry out for help, but the shepherd pays them no mind. They're somebody else's business. They're somebody else's sheep. The shepherd has no obligation to any sheep other than his own. And we should understand that a sheep that's wandering outside of the fold who isn't being tended to by their shepherd is in a world of trouble. 
But the point is this, being in Christ's sheepfold is the only way to be safe. It's the only way to escape God's just condemnation and the only way into the sheepfold is by believing in Jesus. Now this is an incredibly unpopular doctrine. This is a very unpopular doctrine, and it always has been. Uh, People have, have tried to soften it as if they need to apologize for what Jesus is saying here as if they need to apologize for how exclusive Jesus is saying his sheepfold is. C.S. Lewis even hated this doctrine. He tried to soften it by, by arguing that, quote, there are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to consecrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it, end quote. That's heresy. That's heresy. It's, it's completely opposed to what Jesus is saying here in our text. In other words, the idea that he was promoting, the idea is that there's enough common ground between Christianity and Islam, or Christianity and Buddhism, or Christianity and Hinduism, or Mormonism, or whatever, for people to be saved, that they can just stand on that common ground between Christianity and whatever other religion, and that's enough for them to be saved. No, what's necessary for a person to be saved is that they believe in Jesus, and there's no common ground with other religions when it comes to that. Every one of those religions is a religion of salvation by works. You have to earn it. You have to deserve it. You have to be worthy of it. Only Christianity says, guess what? You're not worthy of it. It's by grace, not by merit. Only Christianity teaches that. Anyone who proclaims salvation through a means other than Christ, the good shepherd who's the door of the sheep, anyone who proclaims that salvation is some other way is a thief and a robber. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the incarnate God, is a liar, right? And that's what all these other religions believe. They deny that he is incarnate, that he's God incarnate, that he is the only incarnation of God. John writes in 1 John, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. That's what he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. He goes on to say this in chapter four, verses two and three. He says, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So if somebody from some other religion says, I don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, but I have this common ground with your religion, they're still the Antichrist. They're still not a Christian. They're still not in the sheepfold. That common ground isn't enough. In 2 John, verse 7, John writes, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. It couldn't be more plain. 
But here's why people resist it. It's because natural man, unregenerate man, man whose thinking has been darkened, hates the exclusivity of Christianity. The idea that there's only one way into the sheepfold, and that being through the shepherd. The only way to receive salvation being Christ. And through no merit of our own. As a gift by grace. That's foolishness to natural man. Buddhism, Taoism, Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, Shintoism, Unitarianism, Sikhism. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Every religion outside of Christianity, they all represent and present mere illusions when it comes to ways of receiving salvation. Now, people can argue, and they do, that there are many, many ways to God. And I, I suppose in one sense, that's true. Every road that a man takes will lead to God, to his judgment seat. But there's only one road. There's only one way that leads to grace, redemption, and forgiveness with God. And that is through the good shepherd, by believing in Christ. That's the point to which Jesus worked in the previous chapter with the man who was born blind, wasn't it? I mean, it was necessary for Jesus to come to the man and ask, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man would confess, Lord, I believe. That was his confession. Is it yours? Lord, I believe. Is that what you would say? Then cling to it. If that's your confession, you must Cling to it, because that is the one and only means through which salvation is found. So I, I urge you, I, I beg you, not to hate how exclusive Christianity is. Don't hate this doctrine, but love it. Love it the same way that Noah loved that there was a, an ark for him and his family to avoid the wrath of God on Love it the same way that somebody who needs a heart transplant loves the one heart that will work for them. Love it the same way that a person who is thirsting to death in the desert loves finding one source of fresh drinkable water. Richard Phillips uh, notes in his commentary that, quote, a sinner realizing the otherwise unavoidable prospect of unremitting corruption in this life and wrathful judgment in the life to come does not object that the Son of God lovingly bore for us the hell that our sin deserves. Such a person does not complain, why must my soul be saved in only this way? End quote. So the reason I beg you not to hate this doctrine, but to love it, is because to hate this doctrine is to hate the good news that God has provided a way. It's to hate the very power and wisdom of God unto salvation, which is really no different than to hate what God has planned, what God has given, which is really no different than to hate God himself. Jesus is the door of the sheep. Notice, by the way, that he doesn't say, I am the wall, 
or I am the obstacle course that leads into the sheepfold. Uh, He doesn't say, I am the ticket booth that you have to come to before you come into the sheepfold. No, you know, if if, if he says he's, he's a wall, if scaling a wall is necessary, or if making your way through an obstacle course is what's necessary, uh, that takes some sort of skill, some sort of ability on your part. Uh, A ticket booth would require you to have some money to buy something to buy a ticket to get in, but a door? A door simply requires that we pass through from one side to the other. Jesus is the door of the sheep, and to believe in him is to be received into everlasting life. Now notice also, once again, the response of the sheep in the presence of thieves and robbers. Jesus says that they will not hear those thieves and robbers. Remember what Jesus taught in the previous illustration, that that his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. He said, a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. He's trying to explain this for the Pharisees. The point he's trying to illustrate for them is this. It's that false teachers will never, ever interfere with God's election of his people unto salvation. False teachers will never interfere with God's election of his people unto salvation. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, no power can stop the flood of divine grace. But there's a second implication in this, a warning for those who are listening. And that is that anybody who is following somebody other than Jesus will not be saved. Anyone who is putting faith in himself or herself or in some other figure, anyone who's trusting in their works, anyone who's doing anything other than repenting and believing in Jesus isn't part of God's flock. Now you might hear that and say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. It doesn't seem very just. If a person isn't elected unto salvation by God, then why should they be blamed? Paul answers that question very specifically in Romans chapter nine, by the way. But the answer is also right here in our text. It's very clear. Do you see it? Take a look. To whom is salvation offered? Who does Jesus say in verse nine, salvation is offered to? He says, anyone. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. That's what he says. There's the answer. Jesus says, I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, they'll be saved. It's open to anyone. It's open to everyone. Jesus doesn't say, if somebody has lived a good enough life, I'll bring them through. He doesn't say, if they've got enough money, if they've met the minimum qualifications based on age and gender and social status and education level and and income, uh, they can enter through me. No, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Now you might think, 
Pastor, I thought you were a Calvinist. That doesn't sound like Calvinism. That's where you're wrong. This is Calvinism. See, Calvinism doesn't deny that salvation is open and available to all. So some have looked at this passage that we're looking at today, and they'll think that this contradicts the idea of election or predestination. Not at all. Not at all. Back, back in uh, chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. But then he added in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Those two truths aren't incompatible. They're complementary. They work together. They fit like puzzle pieces. But that's the key to understanding this invitation. The door to salvation is open for anyone to walk through. But left to his own desires, left to his own preferences, left to his own devices, no person will walk through that door. Why not? Because the natural man cannot discern spiritual truth. To natural man, the gospel is foolishness. But see, disbelief isn't a problem up here. It's a problem down here. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a problem of the heart. It's a moral problem. Why do people not walk through the door? For the same reason that people don't come to the light. Why don't people come to the light? Because they hate the light. Because they love their sin. Now, once again, and we've seen John do this so many times throughout this gospel testimony. Once again, John puts two doctrines side by side. First, God's utter and complete sovereignty and salvation, which we saw in the previous passage, verses 1 to 6. And secondly, what we see in this passage, man's total and complete responsibility to repent and believe. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. They do not come into conflict. They are completely harmonious. And to deny either one of those doctrines, the sovereignty of God in salvation or the responsibility of man, to deny either one of those two things is to fall into very serious error and to completely misunderstand the doctrine of election. God's sovereignty doesn't nullify man's responsibility and man's responsibility does not nullify God's sovereignty and salvation. See, man has a responsibility to respond to God because he knows certain truths about God. And yet, what does he do with those truths? In sin, he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. By nature, that's true of you. By nature, that, that's true of me, and it's true of everyone other than Jesus who has ever lived. Left to our own because of sin, even though the door is open for everyone, not one of us would walk through on our own. For a person to respond to the gospel in faith, for a person to accept the offer to enter into the sheepfold through the shepherd, God must take the initiative. God must act. He gives his sheep, he gives his people 
eyes to see. He gives them ears to hear. He draws them to the Son, and they hear his voice calling them by name when the gospel is preached. See, again, we talked about this last week a little bit. There's the general calling of salvation. Uh, when we preach the gospel, we preach to all people, we preach to anyone, we preach to absolutely everyone. But there's also the sovereign effectual calling of God. God must use the general calling that goes out to everyone to issue the sovereign effectual calling of salvation. That's why when the gospel is preached, one person might believe and the other one who's got the same IQ, the same life experiences, the same color hair, whatever, they don't believe. One person hears the gospel the first time and believes. Another person hears the gospel 500 times before they finally believe. What makes the difference? The sovereign, effectual calling of God unto salvation. Now that doesn't mean that God won't call by name the unbelieving person at a later time. He might, that's why we talk about planting seeds with evangelism. God might use those down the road, he might. But the offer to enter in through the door, to believe in Jesus Christ savingly and to thereby receive salvation is open to everyone. It's open to anyone so that nobody has an excuse before God for their disbelief. But God gets all the glory for those who do believe. Here's what the London Baptist, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 says. Chapter 10, paragraph one. It says, Those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. End quote. So those who do come, those who do walk through the door, who believe in Jesus in, and, and have true saving faith in Christ, they come to him because God the Father has drawn them to him. Those who come to Jesus in true and saving faith come because Jesus, the true and good shepherd, has called them by name. And those who come to Jesus in true saving faith come because the Holy Spirit has, by grace, made them willing. The entire Trinity is active in our salvation. So when Jesus says anyone, he means anyone. He means everyone. He meant the Jewish people who thought their greatest struggle was Roman occupation, who openly spat upon Jesus and openly mocked the Lord Jesus as he hung on the cross, but to whom Peter preached on Pentecost so that 3,000 were saved. 
It means the person who seems morally upstanding, but who realizes that being morally upstanding might be good enough to impress people, but it's not good enough to impress God. It means the person who has cheated and stolen from people as a means of becoming a very wealthy person. It means the person who has never had anything to speak of, of value. It means great sinners. It means small sinners. It means people who are victimized or oppressed. And it means those who have victimized or oppressed their neighbors. It means those who have been broken by hardship and suffering in this world, but they see a refuge from the storm in the Savior that has been provided by God himself in Jesus Christ. It means anyone who hears his voice calling out to their hearts to believe, to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. No one can come to the Son unless they're drawn by the Father. And no one can come to the Father except through the Son. Jesus makes this offer to everyone and anyone. He makes this offer to you. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. All who believe in Jesus will be saved. Saved from That's an important question, isn't it? What what does Jesus mean here when he says you'll be saved? Saved from what? Saved from poverty? Saved from suffering? No. God uses those things actually for our good. The good news starts with bad news, that all have sinned, that every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God and that the wage of sin is death. Now, in a physical sense, what that means is that Every moment that we spend on earth is a gift from God. But more specifically, what it means in a spiritual sense is that because of sin, we deserve God's wrath. We're we're cut off by nature from the source of life. That's God. God is the source of life. But God, being a just and holy judge, must punish all sin. Who's going to pay for your sin? You? You? That'll take you in eternity. You'll never be able to do it. But Jesus, fully God, fully man, the one mediator between God and man, bore the sin and shame of his people, of his sheep. And he bore the wrath of God in the place of all who enter into the flock through him. Our sin was imputed. It was was credited to him. And his perfect righteousness in exchange was imputed or credited to us so that we stand before God in God's own perfect righteousness, his own spotless perfection. We're saved, therefore, from the penalty of sin. That's the doctrine of justification. The second way that we're saved is from the power of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin and we're saved from the power of sin. Paul writes in Romans chapter six, verse six, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. See, that's our nature. Our nature is that we are, we're born Slaves to sin. By nature, 
as Luther famously said, we are in bondage to sin. That is to say that sin is our master by nature and sin dictates and corrupts absolutely everything that we do. And sin has held us on a very tight, very short leash. But when a person believes in Jesus, they are set free from the penalty of sin and they are set free from the power of sin so that sin is no longer their master, so that they are no longer in bondage to sin. And this is a reality that we experience, but we only experience very gradually on this side of heaven. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 6, verse 18, he says, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So first we're saved from the penalty of sin. Secondly, we're saved from the power of sin. This is the doctrine of sanctification. Nobody who is saved from the penalty of sin isn't also saved from the power of sin. And so in this sense, sanctification is actually evidence of justification. The Christian life, friends, the Christian life is not spiritually stagnant. Although there may be seasons in which it sure feels like that. But in the long run, it will be a life of growing in grace, of growing in holiness, in growing of our, of our hatred of sin, of growing in, in our awareness of our sin, and of growing in Christ's likeness. So we're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the power of sin. Third, we're saved from the presence of sin. But not yet. Not yet. That day is coming. The day is coming when God will receive us into his presence in heaven. What he will not receive into his presence in heaven is sin. This is the doctrine of glorification. Justification, sanctification, glorification. These are the ways that God saves his people. The natural man will hear this and say, well, Does that mean that I'm not going to be allowed to do all the things that I love to do? And the answer is that when God saves a person, he changes their heart. When God changes a person's heart, he changes their desires. He changes their affections. That means that you'll you'll learn in time to hate the sins that you love. You won't be miserable. You'll be content. You'll be completely satisfied in Christ. Look at what Jesus says here at the end of verse nine. He says, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Listen, a sheep that can do that doesn't have a care in the world. He's happy. He's secure. He's satisfied. See, sheep are very timid animals. That's why we call timid people sheepish. And sheep are timid because they're possibly the most helpless animal that you can find. They don't stand a chance against a person or an animal that seeks to harm them. What hope do they possibly have? Only that their shepherd will protect them and will keep watch over them, keeping them safe and keeping them nourished. And this is what our good shepherd, the true shepherd does. 
Friends, you and I in this world, we are spiritually weak. We are spiritually vulnerable. We are spiritually helpless in this world on our own. Sin is everywhere. Evil is everywhere. But for those who are in Christ's flock, for those who by grace through faith in Christ are part of the true church, we will never ever have to stand alone against the forces of evil and darkness in this world. He loves us and he watches over us. So nothing, nothing happens to us that he has not ordained and has not only ordained, but has ordained for our good. Faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus is the only way to receive God's salvation. Come to Jesus in faith and you will be safe. Come to Jesus in faith and you will be eternally secure. Come to Jesus in faith and you will be eternally satisfied. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for seeing our condition, that we were like sheep without a shepherd, that we were wandering astray, every single one of us, and yet by your grace, you sent the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ to call us out of the world and to lead us to green pastures of salvation. We thank you that you have protected us to this point. We pray that you would continue to protect us. And we look to your promises, your promises not only of saving us from the penalty of sin, And not only saving us from the power of sin, but one day saving us from the presence of sin. We look forward to that day, Lord. But until then, we pray that you would keep us secure. Strengthen our faith where there is unbelief. Strengthen us when we struggle with doubts. We pray that you would never let us leave the flock but that you would keep us secure in your hand in order that we would find eternal satisfaction in you. Thank you for sending the good shepherd. We pray, Lord, that you would use our efforts at reaching out to our friends and family and neighbors for them to hear the voice of Christ calling them all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.com. 
www.thepacticsoul.org and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.